Hey everybody, it's Lon Seidman and I've got something a little different for you today. The Electric Vehicle Club of Connecticut asked me to host an online forum about buying electric cars here in my home state of Connecticut. Right now, if you want to buy a Tesla, it's illegal for you to buy one here in the state. You have to go out of state to get one of these cars and it's not always easy for consumers. A friend of mine recently bought a Model 3. He thought he could go out to Rhode Island and test drive and buy the car. He did go to Rhode Island. He did get the test drive, but they couldn't deliver the car to Connecticut from Rhode Island. They had to go through Massachusetts and then to New York, and he had to drive all the way through Connecticut over to New York to get his car. It is completely ridiculous for consumers to adopt all electric vehicles, and as many of you know, Tesla only sells directly. Now, Tesla is not the only game in town, and in this forum, we're going to be hearing from two EV startups, Rivian and Lucid, who are also dealing with this issue of reaching customers here in Connecticut. It's a great discussion. We've got a former state senator uh, on the call as well who started this effort a number of years ago to allow direct sales, and he's continuing to work to try to get this one over the finish line. And we also have the president of the club, too, who will talk a little bit about some other things that are on the horizon. Now, as always, I like to do my full disclosures here. I was not paid to do this panel, neither by the club or the manufacturers. I am just a very pro-tech, pro-consumer kind of guy, and it's very frustrating that consumers here in my state are being denied access to the latest vehicle technology due to some archaic laws. Uh, so hopefully things will change. I'll put a link down below if you do live in Connecticut about how you can make your voice heard on this topic. The bill is working its way through the legislature. Now, this was done via the club's Facebook page on their Zoom account. Uh, so unfortunately, the video and audio quality here isn't as great as my stuff usually is. It's not always great here to begin with, but it's below that level. Um, but uh, we do have an audio version of the discussion on my podcast feed if you'd like to check that out instead. So lots of ways to watch it. We've got a full index here for you to check out as well. And without further ado, let's get to it. Uh, good morning, and uh, thank you to everyone who's joining us for this Facebook Live uh, about the uh, EV Freedom Bill. Um, we currently have 13,800 EVs registered in Connecticut. According to the goals that have been set forth in the Multi-State Zero Emission Vehicle Action Plan, we need to get to 150,000 by 2025 and 500,000, roughly 20% of the fleet, by 2030. That means we need a compound annual growth rate of 49% to get there. That may sound high, and it is, but the challenge is actually greater than that because this is growth in net registrations. For every 100 EVs we add to the registration file each year, we lose about 50 in turnover. So our acquisition rate actually needs to be closer to double that. Uh, furthermore, uh, direct sales, which up until this point has only been Tesla, accounted for 68% of the increase in registered EVs over the course of 2020. And it was a similarly high number the year before that. So the current laws add friction to the one segment of the market that is in fact actually working. So we really need this bill. And with that, I would like to ask the other panelists to introduce themselves. Great. Well, I'll start. My name is uh, Lon Seibin. I am an EV consumer. I bought my first uh, electric car in 2010, and I've owned three other ones since then. Not at the same time. I keep upgrading or moving over. Um, so I've got some insights that I'll share uh, once we get through the introductions about kind of the degraded experience I've had as a consumer buying these cars over the years. Uh, let me kick it over now to uh, Art Linares, fellow Westbrook guy, uh, former state senator, who I think is uh, should largely be credited with starting this this effort to begin direct sales in the state. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Art Linares, and uh, I've served in the state Senate for six years out in eastern Connecticut on the beautiful Connecticut River Valley. And um, I'm an electric car consumer as well, an enthusiast. Um, I went to buy a Tesla um, in 2014 uh, from, I think it was White Plains. Yeah, it was White Plains. And I was um, taking the test drive, and I asked the um, I, I asked, um, you know, the, the car salesman, Hey, um, why can't I buy this car in, in Connecticut? And he said, well, it's against the law. And so that's kind of how it all, uh, how, how it started for me. On my Great. And, and Barry, why don't you tell everybody what the uh, EV club of Connecticut's all about? So we are a consumer facing organization. We, um, evangelize for EVs. Uh, we still find that even though the modern EV has been around for 10 years or so, uh, just one, a one-on-one -on -one exchange of information or a test drive is still the best way to get a consumer uh, to be seriously interested in actually getting one once they understand the advantages in terms of convenience, in terms of low cost of ownership, and how much fun they are to drive. So we engage in a lot of that. We also track, as you can tell from my introduction, detailed data about EV adoption in the state of Connecticut. Um, and we uh, advocate for policy. So this bill, among others, uh, we're following and uh, advocating for um, in the legislation. Great. And we also are joined by two representatives of two EV manufacturers. And these are uh, the startups. We've got some new manufacturers coming into the mix. So let me start off with uh, Daniel Witt from, uh, from Lucid and tell us a little bit about what Lucid's planning to do. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, thanks for joining today. My name is Daniel Witt. I'm the head of public policy for Lucid. Um, the car behind me is our first vehicle, the Lucid Air. Um, if you were fortunate enough uh, to be at one of uh, Barry's recent events, you actually got a sneak peek uh, at the car that uh, we'll start delivering to uh, consumers, including our uh, existing reservation holders in Connecticut later this year. Um, we really are coming to market with what uh, we believe to be some precedent-setting technology. We're the first vehicle that's going to come, uh, that's going to be sold that will eclipse a 500-mile range. We're anticipating that 300 of those 500 miles will be able to be recharged in uh, roughly 20 minutes. Um, and these are figures which um, have, uh, up until this point, uh, uh, been aspirational. Uh, for the industry, but it, we do believe it's uh, demonstrative of where, frankly, the rest of the industry is headed. Um, you know, we also um, believe very strongly in you know sharing this technology, and uh, ultimately, you know, believe uh, very much that the best pathway uh, towards mass electrification uh, is to support uh, uh, the rest of the industry with our technology to get it down uh, the price points and the cost curve just as uh, even quicker than what we could do uh, as a manufacturer in our own right. Um, so again, thank you to everyone for uh, for joining today and 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 for listening. We're you know tremendous advocates for for this legislation, eager to invest in the state uh, and hire and and be supportive of everything that Barry uh, and, and this coalition continue to seek in terms of broader policy. Great. And finally, we have uh, James Chen on the call, and, and he's a familiar face to me because I interviewed you like seven years ago when this effort first began. Um, so it's good to see you. And why don't you tell us a little bit about Rivian and what the plans are there? Yeah, thanks, Lon. Really great to see you again. Yeah, so I've uh, been in this space for a little over a decade now, uh, in the vehicle regulatory space for close to 30 years. 
super excited about Rivian. Rivian, our, our motto is quite simply keeping the world adventurous uh, forever. And the whole idea is through our uh, two sets of businesses. The first one is our, our business to consumer, which is the one I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are very interested in. And that is through compelling all electric pickup trucks and SUVs. Uh, so we designed the R1T and the R1S, uh, both scheduled to come out later this year uh, as vehicles that are basically setting the benchmark for what an all-electric truck and SUV could be. So, you know, a motor at each wheel, uh, ranges of up to 400 miles, a zero to 60 performance times in as little as three seconds, but with all the capabilities you would expect out of a truck. So uh, towing capacity of 11,000 pounds. Uh, which is better than the benchmark base F-150 uh, bed capacity of 1,700 pounds, uh, the ability to ford in three feet of water without any additional equipment because of the way the truck is designed, and, and features that you wouldn't see in uh, traditional trucks. So with a motor at each wheel, we can actually drive torque in different ways and essentially do what we call the Rivian tank turn. Then that is drive the wheels uh, one way on one side and the other way on the other, and spin the vehicle on its own axis. There are a few YouTube videos about that. Um, but we were proud to be a, a U.S. company uh, backed by a, a diverse set of investors that include both institutional and strategic investors, uh, including Amazon, which is uh, the other exciting part of our business. We entered into a contract about a year ago with Amazon to uh, sell them 100,000 all-electric delivery trucks that are built on our platform, our, our truck and SUV platform. And you may have seen some of the Amazon commercials. They're already starting to advertise some of the early pre-production vehicles uh, doing R&D type events where, or R&D type of, of, of um, uh, runs where they're actually running these vehicles through their paces. Uh, so super excited about how we can really transform the entire truck and SUV market why did we pick this segment beyond the fact that, you know, Rivian's uh, founder and CEO, RJ Springe, is a huge outdoor enthusiast. It is about encouraging folks to get out in the natural spaces. It is about appreciating the lands and the waters on which we all depend to survive and preserving those in a way that, that reduces our carbon footprint that eliminates, frankly, the, uh, the emissions, both traditional and greenhouse gas emissions, from this large segment. So every Rivian uh, truck or SUV that, that is out there supplants the, the highest emitting versions of those gas-powered vehicles out there. Uh, we are a direct sales company like Lucid, like Tesla. We believe that this is as much about education as it's about selling the vehicles. And we wanna be able to have that direct touch with our customers so that we're basically taking care of them from start to finish, whether they're asking questions about the vehicles before purchase, whether it's the purchase process themselves, whether it's servicing afterwards, should, should anything occur through either over-the-air updates, over-the-air diagnostics, or, or over-the-air service, uh, all in a seamless way that, that, that uh, really is a customer-focused type of approach. So thank you, for Juan, for letting uh, us join here, and we look forward to the discussion. Hey, thank you all for, for joining us today. And I thought what I would do is just kind of kick off and just give you some of my experiences buying three Teslas over the last couple of years. Um, I'm one of these people that gets bored with a car and then just goes to the next one. And what's funny is when I got into electric vehicles, I, I just could not drive anything else um, just because of the, the, the torque, that, that zero to 60 time being so fast. The, the driving experience has been 
awesome. Um, the cars never break. <laughs> I never have to take them in to get fixed or anything or even serviced for that matter. So um, it was really hard to, to move out of another vehicle. And as Tesla kept updating their technology, um, I got really interested in just getting into the next version of it. So I went from a rear drive car, which was my first one, to an all-wheel drive car. Uh, the one I have now is an upgrade over the prior one in that it has all the automated uh, driving features and stuff that will be uh, coming down the road. So it's been kind of fun to you know kind of see that progression and experience that as a driver. Um, my first Tesla, I bought sight unseen. Uh, my, my father had, had bought one before me, so I had some experience with it. So I didn't need to have the test drive done or anything else like that. Um, so ordered it online like you'd order anything else online, except that you're, you know, you're transferring over a lot of money. Um, and after a few months or weeks, the uh, car was ready. And, and so I was able to drive to the Tesla service center in Milford to pick the car up. Oddly, when I got there, uh, the car had New Jersey plates on it. Because at the time, I don't think New York could sell the car directly. There were some issues with New York transiting to Connecticut. So the car had New Jersey plates. They did all the transfer paperwork for me. I would imagine on Tesla's side, there was a lot of hoops that they had to jump through to get that uh, vehicle ready to go. Uh, additionally, uh, financing the vehicle was, was tough because a lot of the traditional banks wouldn't finance it because it wasn't being sold in the state in which I lived. I didn't understand what the issues were surrounding that, but um, I ended up having to use a credit union that Tesla had partnered with for this very problem. Um, so there was a lot of just weirdness associated with kind of getting in the door that was a result of some of the overarching, regula not regulatory, but legal issues related to sales in Connecticut. Um, but, you know, it's fine. I got the car. Everything was great. When I upgraded to the all-wheel drive version, similar experience, went down to the Tesla service center in Milford. Uh, this time it had New York plates and not New Jersey plates. So they had uh, some changes in New York and made that possible. So no big deal. Got the car on my way. Uh, the third car I thought was going to be just as easy. I'd bring the old one into the, the service center to trade in and get the new one. But no, I had to drive to Mount Kisco, New York uh, because of some issues that had arisen between the time I bought the second one and the third one. Uh, and so, you know, two hour drive, got stuck in traffic. I got there late because I was stuck in traffic. It was about, you know, like I said, about an hour and a half, two hours uh, for me from where I live uh, here in Essex. And I'm actually closer to Rhode Island, but I learned in a in the discussion we had before the call that you can't buy one from Rhode Island if you live in Connecticut. So New York is kind of the only option. And what's interesting is that you know, even the short time that I was at the Milford Service Center picking up uh, cars one and two, uh, people had come in looking to you know kick the, kick the tires. And that was all they could do because they would ask to take a test drive. They wanted to get more information. Uh, and the employee there could not provide it out of fear that had he said anything to anyone walking in the door looking to purchase the vehicle, it would put uh, his, his job at risk and also the company at risk. So, you know, he was basically turning people away. And that was just the hour that I was sitting in the, in, in this, in the place there. So it was really eye-opening just to see, you know, how difficult it was. And I can't even imagine someone that just wants to try it out, test drive it, a common thing to do before you buy a car and how that uh, is not something doable in, in Connecticut. Um, Art, I wanted to, to bring you in now on this because um, you, know, you really kicked off the effort here to, to, to make this an, an issue that the legislature needs to deal with. Um, as you, you had a very similar experience, you were in, in White Plains. I think that was like that little hole in the wall place that they had for a while. Um, you, you know, what, what have you experienced trying to, to get this through the legislature? Um, you know, we're the land of steady habits. You know, what was the, what surprised you about, about something that would seem so obvious on the surface? 
Yeah, it seems like a, a no-brainer. Uh, a business wanted to come into Connecticut and grow jobs, and there was even discussions about distribution center growth. So it seemed like it was uh, a win-win for everyone, but we faced a <clears throat> tremendous amount of pushback. Um, at the time, it was, you know, only really Tesla was around at the, you know, kind of um, looking to open up at that time. And so the, one of the main, I think, rebuttals was that, you know, you're, you're favoring uh, one company over others. But now you have, you know, Lucid and Rivian and all these other great companies that are looking to, <clears throat> to participate in this in EV Freedom Bill and open up stores. So I'm hoping that that um, argument subsides. Ultimately, you know, in the legislature, you realize that, the, you know, there's the chair of the transportation committee has a tremendous amount of influence, also the leadership um, in, in both chambers. And so um, the, the chair, the former chair of the transportation committee um, really wanted to have um, an agreement in place between uh, Tesla and the auto dealers. It's one of those bills that I think when it's called, um, I think will do very well on the actual vote. Um, but I think a lot of senators would prefer not to vote for it um, because of the political risk. But it's time for you know politicians to have some courage and you know lead Connecticut in its next chapter. And so I hope that they will do that. And now let's kick it over to, uh, to, to Daniel. Why, why go direct? Why not have franchises sell your car? Yeah, I mean, uh, as a new manufacturer, but one certainly with looking at the perspective of Tesla going this route in the sort of near, near, near rear view mirror, um, it's a different perspective than perhaps when Tesla originally engaged in this 10 years ago. We have a tremendous amount of data to suggest the, uh, the efficacy of a direct sales model. Um, you know, 80% of uh, cars, uh, of EVs sold in the state are sold directly to consumers. That right there as a new manufacturer that ultimately has to decide between a business model that was successful for the last 100 years and a business model that has been successful for the last 10, you're looking for actual data points that, that are going to back up the, the choice that you make. We're, uh, most of the folks on, on, on this are going to be familiar with the other side of the coin here, which is that the economics around the distribution system matter a great deal. Um, and in this case, EV, selling in electric vehicles, frankly, a disincentive for uh, dealers. And that may not always be the case, but the business model right now is structured around continued service of vehicles. Now, we all know that service is required on EVs as well. But I think we can all also state that from a factual basis that there is substantially less service required. And that impinges upon the crux of uh, the economy that the dealers have created for, uh, for, for themselves. Um, that contradiction is something that you know, we hope evolves over time and frankly competition is the best uh, uh, is the is the best solution to ultimately get to that point, um, and we've seen that in, uh, in states where direct sales has ultimately uh, been allowed, where along with direct sale manufacturers, dealers have prospered as well. Double digit employment growth, double digit even fifty percent sales growth over the last ten years, 
And so ultimately, you know, we, we, we wouldn't be doing this if we felt it was irresponsible in terms of affecting not only our business, but the businesses of, uh, of others. Um, we've been able to show, again, via data, um, exactly why we think that this policy, which you know, has no cost to the state, ultimately uh, it benefits you know, us, the dealers, the state in terms of its broader, broader policy efforts around electric vehicle adoption, but most importantly, the, the consumers. And James, you know, you've been working on this issue for many years. Um, I'm sure you've had a few states change their policies to, to favor direct sales. What terrible things have happened after that happened? Or, or was it to Daniel's point, is it, is it, has it been good for everyone? Yeah, Daniel alluded to this earlier. And I think the, the simple point is this is about allowing uh, companies uh, that want to invest into a state to simply do so and, and to open up uh, in the open market. And you're right. I, I've been at this for over a decade now. Actually, Daniel and I were on the same team back at Tesla when we were opening up states to try to uh, allow direct sales. And Connecticut was one of those. Senator, it's good to see you again. I know we worked together in the past on this very issue. Um, and so what is the parade of horribles? Well, over the decade that this has occurred where states have opened up, there have been none. Daniel pointed out that franchise dealers, the local businesses, have not gone out of business. They've not laid off people. In fact, to the contrary, the opposite has happened. Sales have only increased. Growth has only increased. This is a great example of how opening the marketplace to appropriately licensed and regulated entities that include manufacturers is only good for the consumer and good for local businesses. So uh, that's all we're asking for here is the opportunity to compete on that level playing field and frankly, to let the consumer decide, to let the consumer have the choice that they want to buy a Rivian, if they want to buy a Lucid, if they want to buy a Tesla, being able to go to those manufacturers. If they want to go to their local dealer, they can still do that. Nothing that we have proposed around the country uh, on, in the various states has said anything about trying to stifle or disadvantage uh, the existing local businesses that are the franchise. And I guess to that point, also, you might have a situation where there's there's more used cars to be sold in, in the secondary market through dealerships and others too, right? I mean, the more, the more electric cars on the road, the more, <laughs> the more opportunities I think there are for everybody. Mir, I see you have your, your hand up. Do you have a, a comment? Uh, yes, I wanted to add uh, one thing to uh, your description of your adventures in buying a Tesla. Um, because as you noted, it, uh, there were changes. Originally, the cars kind of snuck into the state without a state plates, and then that was no longer possible. Um, uh, Tesla is now permitted to, um, uh, to lease at its Milford facility. And uh, so you can go there and you can do the paperwork. You can also take a test drive in Milford, but you still cannot get the vehicle delivered to you in Milford. You still have to go to Mount Kisco. And so I, I just think one of the uh, knock-on effects of all this thing is uh, the creation of a lot of consumer confusion, understandable confusion around this issue, because the present set of laws um, just don't put the consumer first and don't really treat them with the respect that they deserve. And Art, to, to that point, you know, there's been some discussion about consumer protection, um, consumer rights that, that we have currently that apply to people buying cars at dealerships. Um, in, in your work on this bill previously, you know, was there anything that the consumer should have been concerned about? Would you have different levels of consumer protection buying from a dealer versus direct? 
No, I think um, consumer, to me, this is um, really just a consumer friendly uh, policy. Um, It opens up options for consumers. There was no service that would be taken away um, from consumers um, in any way with uh, the implementation of the EV Freedom Bill. Um, If anything, it's a it's a pro-consumer policy. Uh, to the manufacturers on the call, which uh, which states have been the best to work with? I don't think it's a matter of which state is is the best to work with this so much as it is a, a matter of educating uh, legislators and 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 helping them understand. Your question earlier, Lon, that, that, that the senator answered very eloquently about, you know, consumer pre- protection is a good one. So one of the, you know, threats that the dealers say is, well, what do you do about, you know, lemon laws? What do you do about warranties? Well, you know, just by virtue and by the way, uh, 30 years as a, as a regulatory lawyer also gives me a little bit of credibility to speak on this issue as well. You know, the state lemon laws uh, under case law, under, under U.S. Supreme Court case law, to the extent that a manufacturer enters any product into a state, they have, they have created that presence. So if there's any Connecticut resident through the Internet or from a purchase out of state, out of state brings in a Rivian or a Tesla or a Lucid into the state, you know, that manufacturer is obligated to cover those uh, vehicles under state lemon laws, under warranty provisions that exist under both federal and state law. So there is no consumer protection issue. In fact, the opposite occurs here. If you allow us to be able to establish a presence in the state, we only increase our ties to Connecticut. We only increase our presence, and that provides even more hooks, I mean, it's in an inelegant in word, but more hooks for, for the state to be able to say that you're responsible. We're all responsible. And, and frankly, no manufacturer is going to put out a product that they're not going to stand behind because they're not going to last very long, frankly. Uh, so we will be there. But back to your question about which states have been the best to work with, I don't think it's a matter of best states. I think it's states are starting to, to understand and recognize that this is not a subtractive type of approach. This is an additive type of approach. Daniel mentioned this earlier. None of us are seeking money from the state to do this. We're actually asking to allow us to invest our money in the state. So last year in 2020, Colorado ran a bill uh, that we fully supported to allow EV manufacturers to sell directly in the state, overturning a, uh, a law back from 2013 where Colorado had flipped and closed that out. They're now open. Uh, back in 2019, Utah recognized the value of that and opened up the state to EV direct sales. Prior to that, in 2017, Wyoming opened up the state. So, so I think as folks are understanding more and more that the that this is only a benefit, this is only increasing economic activity, increasing jobs, increasing consumer choice without any harm to local businesses, states are beginning to understand. And, and what wonderful about Connecticut is Consumers are also getting it too, and, and Connecticut is a great example. This this legislation wasn't started by Tesla, it wasn't started by Rivian, it wasn't started by Lucid. It was the consumers. It was Connecticut customers, Connecticut consumers saying, citizens saying, we want to have that choice, and that's what's so wonderful about what's happening in Connecticut today. Now, I've got a, a question coming up here, but there's some show and tell involved with it, and the question is uh, about. Why are we not seeing manufacturers of, of traditional automobiles doing more with EVs? We keep hearing we're switching all electric from all these different manufacturers, but we never actually see the car, right? It's always a couple of years out. Or there's a, an electric version of another car that's the same thing, and the electric motor is kind of 
in there and maybe taking up storage space. I was thinking of a minivan that I was looking at recently that had uh, less storage space because it had an electric motor kind of supplementing the, uh, the gas motor. And the show and tell here is something that I, uh, I got when I bought my first electric car uh, from, from Chev Chevrolet. I had a Chevrolet Volt. I leased it in, in 2010. And, you know, I got the sense that this was going to be one of these, um, you know, company changing things that they were betting the company on this. And, in, you know, when I bought the car, I got this care package from them. You know, look at all this marketing. I've got, I got a, a, a flip camera that they wanted me to use to take video of my experiences in the car before the, the smartphones, a beautiful book kind of detailing the entire uh, process of, of developing the vehicle. And I got the sense that, you know, Chevy and GM was, was just all in on this because that car it was a great car. I really loved that car. In fact, the, the, the follow-up was pretty nice too, but I felt like they, they never did enough to get it over the finish line insofar as selling it, right? It was, it was produced, it was engineered, it was talked about at the manufacturer level. Um, but after that, it didn't sell very well and they ultimately stopped making it. Um, and, you know, Daniel, like, is it, is it because of volumes here? Like, what, what do you think is the reason why um, we're not seeing more electric cars being sold to consumers under the current model? You know, I, there's, you could do a whole class on, on, on this. There's a lot of different answers to, to that question. Um, you know, there is some, uh, some credibility to the dealer argument that they sell what they are given. So uh, some of this is incumbent upon the legacy manufacturers who up until this point have not uh, put their shoulder into uh, the wheel of change and ultimately uh, invested um, their time and energies in putting out compelling electric vehicle technology, with a few exceptions, like what you've noted about the Volt and, and, uh, and the Bolt to follow. Um, I, I do think that uh, that exchange from the manufacturer to the dealer is still a problem, and it goes back to the, the point that I raised earlier around the, the economics. Um, deal, dealerships have transitioned over time from mom and pop, single family owned to conglomerates uh, that may or may not frankly still have a family presence even if they've been passed down from, from generation to generation. And the business model has only evolved slightly um, you know, with, uh, with the changes, uh, with the evolution of technology around internal combustion engine vehicles. What we've seen just since 2008 and when the Tesla Roadster ultimately came out is a complete transition of the technology that ultimately uh, is being used in, in the vehicle. And that is having this seismic shift in terms of how uh, ultimately the relationship between the consumer uh, and uh, and the product ultimately um, uh, it ultimately engages, except it's almost like it's happening underwater. Um, it, it's happening so slowly because that 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 wave of electric vehicles is st is still ever coming. Now I'm extremely bullish about this next decade. Um, you've seen. Um, Mary Barra and GM and Ford uh, and the international manufacturers all have press releases and all have these sort of moments where there's this realization of the change that's about to occur. I'm not seeing the same um, uh, evidence or the, the same communication at the distribution level yet. And again, this is where I think competition is the best, uh, is the best medicine. 
ultimately the uh, dealers will respond to inevitable change. Uh, and the, the expectation is that they'll evolve to a different business model that enables them to continue to thrive. There's every evidence to, to, to that effect. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And I want to talk next about charging infrastructure. And I think, Barry, you might be the best one to, uh, to start with this, uh, this question. Um, you know, are we seeing charging stations increase throughout the state? I know, you know, I've, and Martin, I've been very fortunate to have Teslas. We can plug into those superchargers and we're in and out pretty, pretty quick. Um, what, what's developing out there to give consumers a little less range anxiety, perhaps, uh, next to the fact that some of these cars have much greater range? Um, obviously, charging and, and getting fueled up, essentially, is still an issue. What are you seeing out there? Um, uh, Deep uh, posts uh, this number on their website, and I believe it's up to 360. Um, We're seeing um, gradual growth in charging stations. Um, We are caught in a bit of a chicken and egg situation in that uh, private companies are reluctant to invest in, in rapid expansion of charging infrastructure until they see that consumers are buying EVs in sufficient quantities. And of course, consumers are reluctant to buy EVs um, until they perceive that there is a satisfactory charging infrastructure, which there is for Tesla, but it's still a little spotty um, for for the other connectors. Um, So I think the uh, Biden stimulus package has a really important role to play here because they can they can help us push past it by getting a lot more um, a lot more chargers installed sooner rather than later. Um, uh, the uh, aftermath of Dieselgate is helping. Uh, in there are two pots of money there. There there was uh, the fine that was then dispersed to the states, and in Connecticut it was turned over to, to uh, Deep to provide grants. So there is that goes for other things besides charging infrastructure, but there, there is charging infrastructure that's being financed by those grants. And um, when I spoke to uh, Electrify America at the beginning of the year, they said that their, their third and final phase um, of uh, infrastructure uh, of charging deployment will be uh, heavily uh, focused on the Northeast. So, so, so the, as of today, you know, it's not terrible, but it has room to improve we're optimistic that it will over the next couple of years. All right. And we've got some uh, questions coming in from the uh, Facebook chat here. And uh, James and Daniel are going to get the, uh, the first one. Uh, what, what kind of uh, presence do Rivian and Lucid see for themselves in Connecticut, um, either with or without uh, direct-to-consumer sales? And we can have uh, James start off on that one. Yeah, sure. So we definitely plan to be where our customers are uh, and to ensure that, that, that they have the choice that they, they deserve, frankly. So let, let me start out with right now, any Connecticut resident who wants to buy a Rivian or a Lucid or a Tesla for that matter can do so. Uh, we've, all, we've all looked at different bo- business models on how to do this. And from the Rivian point of view, you know, we will have a Rivian website set up. You can reach out to a licensed facility facility. 
uh, in one of the states where we're allowed to sell directly and, and be able to purchase your vehicle. And, uh, you know, as, as folks have found out through um, their Tesla experiences, we will, we will get that vehicle to you. Uh, it will be a lot easier if we are allowed to sell directly because that means we will be able to invest, put up a retail location, whatever that looks like, provide direct service for you all, uh, and ensure that we're there to support our customers in a more fulsome and direct way. This is all about creating less hassle for consumers. Rivian still will be able to sell directly to, well, still will be able to sell to Connecticut residents. It's just a matter of, of how we can overcome the hurdles uh, that are imposed by these bans on direct sales. And Daniel? Yeah, I think the only thing, uh, that, that is a, a great answer, Jim. The only thing that I'd add to that is there is a tremendous opportunity here. Um, you know, the, Tesla uh, piloted uh, a, uh, a, what's known as the START program, um, which has a, uh, a, it works with a community college institutions around the country to train um, uh, folks without, uh, without four-year degrees, ultimately in, in uh, technical capacity to be able to provide service for Tesla vehicles. Right now, that is limited to Tesla. But here's, the, here's this transformational change that, that we were talking about earlier. We need to set up similar programs in community colleges that ultimately stop teaching uh, around the internal combustion engine. Uh, or, or diesel engines, but rather focus on what is a more sophisticated technology, but enables uh, more skilled uh, uh, labor um, that can uh, that's portable. It's not to suggest that the, uh, these folks will uh, will will be you know stuck for a career in a career as a technician if they don't want to be. But that technology is it, it, that that. Uh, experience is extremely portable into the broader economy that we're all trying to create. Uh, so ultimately, I think that, you know, this is, again, it's just it's sort of over and over again. This is, this is not a, a zero sum game. This is additive. This is creating jobs. This is creating additional investment. Uh, it's creating an economic force that ultimately pro uh, propels itself um, and leads to uh, and, and leads to further uh, long-term growth uh, in in uh, in the economy. That's a good point too. I, I was just thinking as you were talking about the uh, the Tesla Service Center in Milford. You know, so I've, I've got you know eight years of of seeing the progression. And you know, when I first got the car, maybe Art can relate to this too. It was kind of like a clubhouse over there, right? You'd go in. It was not a lot of people. You could chat with all the all the guys working on the, and the gals working on the cars. It was, it was a lot of fun. And, and now it's, it, there's a lot more people working there now. There's a lot more volume and, and, and you know, just an overall more busy uh, activity uh, there, just given the larger number of customers that are there. And certainly there's more, more jobs created as a result. Uh, the next question from the audience uh, is for Art. Um, this is a really weird year um, to, be, to be lobbying for bills, if you will. Um, because there's no lobby in which to lobby, <laughs> which is where a lot of things happen out in the hallways, as you know. Um, what's the best advice you can give to folks right now who feel that this bill is important uh, to get it over the finish line, um, given how difficult it is to, to reach people directly? Yeah, I think call your state rep and call your senator. Um, they do pay attention uh, to your phone calls. They do pay attention to how many people support or oppose an issue. So I think um, you know, reaching out directly, letting them know that you care about it, that's important to you, 
and uh, obviously that it's important to to our environment and Connecticut voters care deeply about the environment and they they want to see a change there um, and so this I, I can't think of a better way to do it uh, to help the environment than voting for this bill um, so reach out um, encourage your friends your family members anyone who cares about this issue and there are a lot of them to reach out as well um, and and uh, ask you know, if they are supporters, um, if, if your legislators are supporters, um, ask if there's a way you can help. Great. And, and what happens for, so let me ask you this, because you, you, you were in the Senate for a number of years, and you would often hear from people outside of your district. Um, what's the best way if, if that, so our questioner had said that their state rep and state senator are on board, ready to go. How, how can they continue to, to, to try to convince other reps that might be on the fence? What's worked for you in the past? Yeah, yeah. So I think, um, you know, Getting an understanding if, if you know, your state senator or legislator state rep is willing to share information with you, if there are um, you know, colleagues of theirs that are on the fence, um, give them a call. Even if they're not in your district, um, reach out to them. Um, you know, pay attention to uh, various events and, and uh, what the EV groups across Connecticut are doing. Show up to those events on, on Zoom or otherwise. And, and be supportive. Um, you'd be surprised how influential uh, your voice can be um, and, and just showing that support. That's, that's the way that you get it, that you get it done. And then also, um, you know, I'm just couldn't tell you how um, proud I am of uh, Senator Haskell for what he's doing and taking the lead and having the chair supporting the bill. So be supportive of him, reach out to, to you know, his um, you know, his staff find out ways um, that you can help him too. Uh, here's a question uh, from another viewer, uh, James and Daniel. Uh, would Lucent and Rivian commit to infrastructure assistance in Connecticut beyond what is currently planned um, if it helps those that oppose the bill? I'm guessing maybe electric charging infrastructure and other things that, that might be helpful. Are there things that, that you're willing to do to help, you know, maybe some of those senators that are on the fence? Yeah, this, listen, at the end of the day, this is, this is not about, you know, being victim. This is about proliferating EVs throughout, uh, and that includes not just uh, being able to sell those those electric vehicles to consumers who want them, but being able to support them throughout. So we recently announced, I think it was a couple of months ago, that Rivian is going to be donating chargers to electrify every single state park in Colorado. Uh, and this is a program we're looking to expand in, in other jurisdictions. And we're not looking at whether the state is open to direct sales or closed to direct sales. We're looking at how this helps expand the network. We also announced our Rivian Adventure Network, which is high-speed charging. And, and uh, by the way, to, to clarify, the, the, the chargers that we're putting into state parks are those level two chargers that typically charge in the range of 15 to 20 miles of range replenished back into the battery pack per hour. Because you go to a park, you're going to, do, you're going to hike, you're going to spend some time there. You have time to plug in that vehicle and, and, and let that, that charge uh, come up on your vehicle. And by the way, this is not just for Rivian vehicles. Those, those state park charging stations will work with any electric vehicle that utilizes the J1772 uh, CCS combo charger. We're also putting out the Rivian Adventure Network to help our Rivian owners be able to do long-distance drive. That's the uh, DC fast charging system that puts in up to 140 miles back into the vehicle in as little as 20 minutes. So our goal is, is 
EV proliferation, and that means that putting in level two chargers, putting in these high-speed chargers, and, and not looking at whether the state is open to direct sales or not, but just investing uh, throughout the United States and eventually throughout the world. Yeah, I think, you know, as with anything, there's a lot of ways to answer this question. I think what I uh, what I'd say is, we, you know, we have a, a, a pretty expansive partnership with Electrify America, which already has you know, investments in the state. There need to be more. And as Barry alluded to earlier, they're looking for market signals that ultimately there's going to be greater adoption of electric vehicles in order to support broad, uh, broader infrastructure. Some of those signals are uh, uh, just occurring between uh, businesses. And so the emphasis from our side grows as, uh, as our, um, uh, as our uh, base of customers uh, grows in the state as well. Um, we're currently not offering any uh, private um, uh, net network of charging stations, but I, I guess the, the long, it, the, the point I'd like to emphasize here is because I am bullish on a uh, much greater adoption over the next 10 years, there needs to be a focus um, and an adv a continued advocacy around the, the, the charging issue. Right now, there is a perception issue uh, more so than anything else uh, around uh, issues related to charging that, that, uh, that sort of underscores a very real need. We've got 80-mile range vehicles, and as of later this year, we'll have 500-mile range vehicles. How do you size a, an ecosystem of, of refueling stations to cover the gamut of uh, of those, and I should say, we go down to the plug-in hybrids with 15 miles uh, of range. How do you create a system that supports not only families with an independent two-car garage, but those who uh, don't own their home and rent in in a multi-unit dwelling? How do you create the same economic benefits uh, for the transition of vehicle for uh, for those folks? We want to be a part of those conversations, and those, frankly, are the tough tougher issues uh, than, than the one that we've spent most of our time talking about today. They, are, they demand a, a level of attention and resources to ultimately get it right. So I guess what I would say is I, I commit to, to, you know, to anyone listening that we'll, we'll uh, join any of those conversations uh, day, noon, or night. Um, you know, this is an issue which, uh, which only propels those conversations further. And James, uh, another question that came in from a from a viewer: um, If you're obviously both uh, Lucid and Rivian are in the process of, of re you know releasing their products into the market, uh, how would this bill impact um, Rivian's launch if it passed versus not passing? What, what's the consumer experience going to be like? Well, the consumer experience is going to be slightly different if the bill doesn't pass. So, if the bill doesn't pass, um, a Connecticut consumer would have to reach out to one of our licensed locations. Uh, in another state to be able to finalize uh, or to convert their pre-order into an actual order and then purchase the vehicle. And then we would work with that customer and we may have to involve a third-party shipper to provide that vehicle uh, delivered to that, that owner. We will take care of that owner regardless, uh, one way or the other. Um, but again, we may have to use the third-party shipping company to deliver the vehicle. And then that customer may actually have to uh, take care of their own paperwork with regards to registration, titling, and licensing of the vehicle in Connecticut. We're still trying to figure out how to make that more seamless, 
frankly, uh, this bill passing would allow us to actually have a presence in the state and take care of the customer directly in state. Um, to the extent that the bill doesn't pass, we'll figure out a way outside of the state to be able to do that. But it sounds like you know it it, it, put, it puts you at a disadvantage uh, at this point if if it doesn't because it, it does require more on the consumer to to achieve something that they could do if they could just buy the car. <laughs> Correct. It, it will place more of a burden on the consumer, and, and that's the real kicker here. Um, the direct sales prohibition puts more pressure or more inconvenience on the consumer without any legitimate state purpose or benefit to anybody else. This is just basically an impediment to the consumer being able to exercise their choice as a purchaser. Uh, I'm going to bring Barry back in because uh, th there's a lot more that can happen if, if we be allow these cars to be sold here, right? You had emailed me earlier that there's, there's kind of, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg for what could happen next in EVs. What, what do you think is out there in the future? Um, well, I, I think that the... Uh that the traditional auto industry opposition to this bill just um, doesn't really take into, uh, doesn't take into account the fact that direct sales is just one development that we are going to see, right? There's greater digitization of commerce in general. Um, there are other companies looking at other models. Uh, Canoe has talked about a subscription model. Uh, there's a company called Steer EV. I, I believe they're uh, in the state of Washington, and they're offering a, some flavor of subscription model. Uh, there's a uh, there's a startup in the UK called River Simple, which is doing a hydrogen fuel cell subscription model, and 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 there will be all kinds of um, different variations on these. Um, VW in Germany was uh, the first automaker to basically announce that, hey, we're giving up on our dealers and we're moving all EV sales online and using the dealers as agents. Now, Volvo seems to be doing um, something along those lines in this country. They're a, little, uh, they're a little vague about how it works, I'm sure deliberately so, but uh, if you want to buy a Volvo EV, you now do it online. We recently had a club member who bought a Volkswagen ID4, one of the first to come into the state. And uh, he told us that his entire sales experience was online. So Volkswagen hasn't said anything publicly, you know, but clearly the uh, auto, auto companies are wrestling with, uh, are wrestling with this, but, uh, but they don't acknowledge the profundity of the changes that are about to affect the industry. And, and that's, that's really my point and about how a state like Connecticut, if we don't allow direct sales to happen, uh, we could become a backwater as companies that want to innovate and, um, you know, and, and bring new green jobs into the state will look elsewhere. That's my fear. I look at a state like Texas, where they're going to be making uh, some some Teslas in limited quantities, and they've got to ship them out of state <laughs> to sell them back in, right? It's just because te Texas, of all places, is still restricting uh, uh, direct sales. I got one last question for uh, the uh, from for uh, Matt and, uh, for Daniel and James here. Uh, will Rivian and Lucid help their owners navigate uh, based? This is from a viewer. Uh, navigate based on charging locations that are available. Long haul driving, um, you know, still a, a challenge to some degree. You know, it's easier now with more charging stations. But I do remember when I first got into EVs, I would I would plot my course for a, a long range drive. What kind of things are are consumers uh, going to experience with uh, with your cars for planning out long haul 
drives. And we'll start with uh, Daniel. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Lon, to go back to something you, you just mentioned about Texas, I think it's worth pointing out that right now Connecticut's laws are even more draconian than those in Texas. Uh, and so, I mean, if, if if there's ever sort of evidence to to suggest a state that, you know, clearly the governor just joined other governors in support of 100% sales for 2035, um, you've got ardent advocates within the legislature for electrification. You've got um, you're a, a part of a coalition of states that's already uh, seeking to uh, 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 seeking mass electrification. So the the it, there's such a discontinuity, I think, um, it, it, that exists just because of this sort of this languishing policy. Um, to the point uh, to the question that you uh, that you raised, um, I. I we are developing an interface with, uh, or I should say a very visual interface within uh, the vehicle in partnership with Electrify America. It's also likely to include other uh, charging providers based on the, uh, the ability to establish an API within, uh, with the system um, so that consumers ultimately will have every confidence uh, that you know, they'll be able to uh, recharge on long road trips. I would go back to the, the prior answer just to say, you know, we are exploring new territory where we're going to have vehicles in excess of 500 miles of range. Our CEO is, is known for saying, if you recharge all of those miles, it's probably not healthy for you to be driving, you know, it, all the way to the full capacity on the, uh, off, of that, off of that refuel. Um, so, it, you know, ultimately at some point, we're going to encourage you to take a stop, to, uh, take a look around, enjoy your surroundings and, uh, and get a bite to eat. Uh, but it's fair to say that, you know, the, the, uh, the system within the vehicle, the multimedia display, um, will, uh, it, it will enable that, that type of, uh, very, uh, deep cu- uh, customer interaction. And James, you mentioned there's like these out, these, uh, you're really trying to, to, promote the outdoors and bringing these vehicles into places where you may not have gone before. And, and I'm guessing you're going to have some interface around helping people find those opportunities for fast charging. Yeah, absolutely. Similarly to the answer that Daniel gave, we, we are working on systems that will be uh, native to the vehicle itself, part of the center screen, part of the trip planning, where we will map out where those charging stations are. We are moving forward and quite quickly with uh, our entire charging team to be able to install chargers. I mentioned Colorado as a state park. I should have mentioned we're in talks currently with about three or four other states to do something similar. And all of those will be mapped out in an application that will be available on the vehicle through the center screen. So you'll be able to do route planning. You'll be able to plan that where you're going to be charging your stops, where you need to uh, recharge and how you get to your destination, not only the fastest way possible if you want to, but potentially the most scenic. Or, or if you want to take a few interesting detours, you'll be able to do that as well. Great. Well, you know, I've been driving electric for, for 10 years, and I think it's once more people experience it, they're never going to want to go back and have to pump gas anymore. So it, hopefully it'll continue. So we're pretty much at the, uh, the hour here. So what I thought I would do is, um, I'm just looking on my screen here, maybe going from... Uh, uh, from one end of the screen to the other, uh, maybe just do a little lightning round. Uh, we'll start with uh, with Art um, and and maybe just uh, make a pitch. Why should people watching be supportive of direct sales? People should be supportive of direct sales because it's going to create jobs and investment in the state of Connecticut because it's the next chapter in transportation 
and Connecticut should lead the way. Um, and it's, it's ultimately going to create opportunities um, for people to learn how the electric motor works, which you know um, is, is not only important for cars, but it's important to learn uh, for drone repairs. It's important to learn for um, you know, wind turbine uh, mechanics. So there, there's so much more to this and uh, Connecticut should lead the way and it's great for our environment. So I encourage you know, all the senators and legislators listening, vote for it. Um, let's, let's get it done this year. Yeah, there are just so many reasons why it's hard to cover them all, but ultimately this boils down to consumer choice. Allowing Connecticut consumers to be able to choose how they want to purchase EVs to allow the promotion of EV technology, as, as the Senator uh, correctly pointed out. And also uh, keeping in mind that this is about investment by companies uh, into Connecticut, into the state to invest in and put up uh, facilities that also create jobs. And at the same time, with no harm to existing business whatsoever. Uh, this is ultimately about consumer choice, investing in the economy, uh, leading in technology, promoting uh, American companies that are seeking to do this and lead the way, and all without harming existing businesses. Great. Thank you, James. Daniel? I mean, what else can be said? I've talked a, a little bit um, about the, sort of this grander vision of electrification, and there's no reason that Connecticut can't be a leader in that, uh, in that effort. Um, you know, everything uh, that Senator Linares and, and, and Jim said is, is absolutely true. Um, when you try and uh, wrap that all up in a nice bow, what this it amounts to is, you know, Connecticut stepping into the light uh, and ultimately being at the forefront of this inevitable change. Um, again, this it, we can prove with data how this is a rising tides lifts all boats type of policy. It's a policy change that many states have already addressed and are already looking to a, a, a more complicated future um, of you know, policies that ultimately need to be solved uh, to, enable, uh, and to enable the prosperity that we all seek. So uh, this is, it, it, this is a, it's, a, it's a policy that, that invariably captures a lot of emotions. Um, and, you know, respectfully, you know, there's a lot of history um, in both this bill and the issue nationally such that, that, you know, that's perfectly understandable. But I'd like to think that, you know, we've all reached a point where we can uh, separate fact from fiction uh, and, you know, come down on, uh, on the side that enables us to move forward together. So I think this bill is about the consumer. It was the EV club that uh, wrote the first draft of the EV freedom bill and sent it to the Senate. And I wouldn't have done that if uh, there wasn't a demand from club members to have this happen. Uh, I also think that the momentum that we've gotten this time has been driven by the grassroots because once this uh, was put out there, we had the Tesla Owners Club, we had the other organizations that are members of the Connecticut Electric Vehicle Coalition uh, step up and join us in uh, lobbying for this bill. Um, the day that the committee held uh, the public testimony, um, uh, Daniel testified that day, um, but I had, the, I had the dubious privilege of being selected to go next to last. So I actually hung around for the whole hearing to listen what everybody had to say. And 
Uh, one observation is that everyone who testified that day, as well as everyone who submitted written testimony who wasn't a dealer, was in favor of this bill. Consumers want this bill. Also, respect, with respect to uh, the jobs comment, I'd, I'd just like to add something to what uh, the senator said, which is that this is not just about uh, jobs with EV companies like uh, Rivian or Lucid. Um, one of the people who testified at the public hearing was an owner of a chain of gas stations and convenience stores. <clears throat> he wants to buy, and he's talking to a Connecticut company that manufactures EV charging stations. He wants to put these charging stations at his facility and add food service uh, so people will stop and charge and, and patronize his stores. The, um, the police department in uh, the town where I live bought a Tesla Model 3 that they fully customized for law enforcement. The two companies that do this customization happen to be Connecticut-based companies, and they see a big, and they see a big market uh, for these things. So I think there will be all kinds of things, some of which we could predict, but others that will just pop up as a result of the entrepreneurship that's uh, building around the space. Great. Thank you, Barry. And uh, I want to thank everyone for, for tuning in. Um, I am also in favor of, of this bill passing. Um, all of us here, you know, there's some company representatives, but, but those uh, of us civilians here, uh, Art, Barry, and I are, are not on, on being paid to, to talk about this. This is something we're passionate about. Uh, I am very pro-technology. Obviously, I work in technology all day long here in my little basement studio doing YouTube videos, um, but I, I think it's the future. And what's amazing about electric cars is that uh, you, know, you have one plug, but there are many different types of fuel types that can make that car go. And Art was in the solar business, and I had some solar panels up at my uh, last job when I was still uh, working for somebody, and, and I was able to charge up my car uh, from solar and basically run my car, my entire commute off the sun as it sat in the parking lot all day. There's just so much potential um, to, to drive down costs, create jobs, make things better for consumers. And I think uh, you know, this market, the automobile market, uh, needs to have that flexibility. Other states have, have taken this step and we haven't seen detrimental things happen to the consumer. If anything, things got better for the consumer. And I hope uh, you know this, this talk today was helpful for those of you watching to learn a little bit more about electric cars. Once you try one, you'll never want to try anything else. Um, and uh, the folks here want me to remind you that there's a website, uh, evfreedomct.com, uh, that you can go to to learn more about the effort here to get the bill passed. And uh, it's looking like it could happen this year. So uh, keep up uh, letting your representatives and senators know. And hopefully uh, we'll have some more consumer choice in the state. So that is going to do it for the call. I want to thank everyone for their time today. This was a lot of fun and I actually learned some stuff today too. So it was really, uh, really great. So thank you all for being a part. This channel is brought to you by the Lon.TV supporters, including Gold Level supporters Chris Allegretta, Tom Albrecht, Mark Bollinger, Sergio Morales, Mark Dell, Jim Callagher, and Stephen Sue. If you want to help the channel, you can by contributing as little as a dollar a month. Head over to lon.tv slash support to learn more.
And don't forget to subscribe. Visit lon.tv slash s.